weekend, and I know that uh, maybe you got some tax-free savings this weekend. Can you believe the stuff that is on the list? I mean, some of y'all who haven't been to school in a while probably saved some money this weekend on some of the things that they offered. But anyway, we fought the madness and got some new shoes. So not for me, but uh, for the kids, of course. So think about Bible stories. Certain Bible stories need no introduction. People even that aren't familiar with the Bible, maybe haven't even read the Bible, know a lot of the stories that, that we know about being in the church, as we would say. So you've got Adam and Eve, you have uh, Noah and the ark, you've got Moses and the Red Sea, uh, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, you've got David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den that people have heard about. And certainly the list can be longer and you can add some of your own to that. But on that list would have to be Abraham and Isaac. People know about this story, uh, it's maybe not the exact details of it, but they've heard about this Abraham and Isaac. And so this father and son, you've got Abraham who's ready to do what God has commanded him to do. Isaac carrying the wood, Abraham building the altar, Isaac climbing up on the altar, Abraham tying his son with ropes, and Isaac waiting for the knife to fall, and Abraham raising the knife. And in Hebrews 11, as we continue this morning, we read that by faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. He had received the promises, yet he was ready to offer up his only son. And so certainly whether we would say it, ask it out loud, the people who would hear these stories who maybe are not connected with church would want to know, how could a loving God ask this Abraham to sacrifice his only son? How could that happen? And so some critics have even dismissed this story saying that, you know, this presents such a grotesque caricature of this God of the Bible, God of the Old Testament especially. And so... We humans, how can we even, though, step aside from that and think we're in the slightest position to criticize an almighty God on the grounds of anything that we can reason about ourselves? But here's the problem, I think, that we may have with this story. I think we read the story backwards. We start at the end and then we try to read backwards. And so we start with the fact that Abraham ended up not having to put his own son to death. And we say, see, God never intended for Abraham to do this because it didn't happen, right? We do that in life sometimes, do we? If something didn't happen, well, God, it must have meant, God must not have meant for it to happen. So although true on one level, we risk missing the meaning of the text if we chase that rabbit too far down the road. And so whatever else we may say, it is unquestionably true that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son with the intention that Abraham would do it. And so this is one of those stories that transcends the written pages of the Bible. The historical fact of, of what happened here is transmitted through oral repetition. It's, it's spoken in, in stories and, and family gatherings for, for years, for centuries. Not only, though, within the, the Jewish cultural history, but you know this is also a story within Islam. Did you know that? This is a known story, a belief story within Islam, although they would say it was Ishmael who was the son of promise and not Isaac. But they know this story. And so Genesis, though, tells us what was at stake after Abraham was in the middle of this journey to an unknown land that God had called him to. So we're going to go backwards a little bit uh, to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1 as we read that sometime after these things, what things? Well, the things God had already visited with Abraham about. 
So God tested Abraham now, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am. And Abraham replied, God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will indicate to you. And so it would have been enough if God had simply said, take your son. But God qualifies this in three, phase, three phrases here that I think are, are pretty important. So he says, your only son, not forgetting Ishmael, who had already been born, but he means Isaac, your only, the son of the promise who in God's God's relationship with Abraham was the only son. He says, you take your only son, Isaac, the son whom Abraham and, and Sarah have been waiting for for a quarter of a century now, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And we might think that God was mocking him here, but absolutely not. These words are meant to reassure Abraham that God knew what he was asking Abraham to do. This son of promise whom you love, you take him. And so by saying it this way, Abraham would know that God knows what he's asking. And so let's be clear about what God's asking at this point. So he wanted Abraham to travel with his son to Moriah. And so the mountains of Moriah are in the area which is today known as the area around Jerusalem. So he says, you go to this area, which centuries later would be this land of Jerusalem. He says, you build an altar of stones and on, on one of the mountains there. And so then he would take his platform of wood and he would place it on the stones. And then Abraham was to ask Isaac to lie down on that wood. And then Abraham would take a knife and he would slit Isaac's throat in the same way that a sacrificial lamb would be killed. And then finally, he would light the wood burning his son's body as an offering to God. This is not the stuff we see on the children's Bible class illustrations. But let's be clear about what God is asking him at this point. And Scripture doesn't give the exact age of Isaac, but the time frame would seem to indicate that he could have been 25 to 35 years old. He's not some fifth grade boy that Abraham is tricking into getting him up on the altar. And so I would suggest in that time frame that Isaac would have been in his early 30s. Well, why would you think that, Sean? Well, here's my reasoning. Because God told Abraham, you take your son, your only son, whom you love, you take him to, his, to this mountain, which God knew one day was going to be the mountains of Jerusalem. And He says, you sacrifice him there. Your only son, whom you love, sacrificed on a hill. See, I think Isaac was in his early 30s because that's how old Jesus was when he was sacrificed there. And God loves to connect the dots like that. But nevertheless, at that point, the man of faith has two options. You either obey or you don't obey. You disobey or you obey. And so if you stop and argue with God, then that itself is a form of, of disobedience. And if you try to talk God out of it, well, that too is disobedient. Maybe you offer a, a different plan. Hey, God, have you thought about doing it this way? Well, isn't that also kind of a form of disobedience? So what to do? What to do? What do you do in this position? Well, Hebrews eleven eighteen says, God had told him through Isaac, descendants will carry on your name. I'm going to bless you with a multitude of descendants through this son, Isaac. And so we naturally focus on the unimaginable sorrow of, of Abraham going to this altar, thinking about losing this child, an unspeakable tragedy. 
for any parent. And nothing in the world seems more unnatural than for parents to bury their children. It's like a period before the end of the sentence. But in this case, God told Abraham, you offer your own son. And Abraham was fully prepared to do it. He was so prepared, in fact, in verse 17, it actually says that Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So we go, well, wait a second. We've read the end of the story and we kind of know what happens. But it says here he offered him. Well, what it means is that when he laid his son on that altar and he raised that knife, he fully intended to offer his son, to put him to death. And this is poignant and it's personal. And God had already promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation and through that nation to bring blessing to the entire world. And God said that He would bring that blessing of the nations from Isaac's descendants. But how could that happen if Isaac was dead before he was even married or had children? And so here we're faced with what seems to be this enormous contradiction. So if Abraham obeys this command of God here... Doesn't that cancel the promise that God has made? And if Abraham disobeys the command, then what happens to the promise? So we're, we're kind of stuck here. But we know that faith, Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced, being certain of what we yet cannot see. And so he didn't know, Abraham didn't know how God would do it. He just believed that somehow that he would. And we are called to faith when the cost is high and the understanding is low. That is the life. That is walking by faith. When it costs me so much and yet I know so little about how this is going to turn out. So faith doesn't reckon with the how. Faith believes and then leaves the how in the hands of the Almighty God. Because if we spend too much time trying to figure out the how God will take care of us, then we're likely to talk ourselves into a corner. We work ourselves into a dead end. And so remember, Abraham had no idea. He had none idea about how this was going to turn out when he started on this journey. God said, you go to this place and you sacrifice your son. Abraham couldn't see past that. This three-day journey to Moriah. Scripture says it was a three-day journey to this mountain. He set out to obey God, knowing that the one who called him to offer his beloved son, he would solve the how question, even when Abraham could not. That's the life of faith. God says, you do it this way. You live your life this way. You trust me that I know what's best for you. And so he reasoned that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. And in a sense, Abraham received him back from the dead. And so twice here in, in Genesis 22, Abraham suggests that he expects somehow, he's living with this expectation that somehow, some way, God is going to work things out so that Isaac would live. And so when he saw Moriah in the distance, when he saw the, the place in the distance, I can't imagine you're standing there, you know, you're on the three day journey, and so you've got some time, you know, you're thinking this over. Surely, you know, God's going to set up a detour at some point. So day one passes. You're in the middle of day two, and surely, you know, aren't, God, we're going to do something different, right? You're thinking about this. Maybe you need a little extra time to realize this wasn't a good idea. And day three arrives. And you're like, whoa, man, 
God's been busy because I need to hear from Him right now. And then you see the mountain. And you're there. And so He says to His servants, You too, you stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you. And so you read this scripture, do you get that? He says, we, we will come to you. Is this wishful thinking? Is this hopeful thinking here? Maybe Abraham doesn't want to alarm the servants. He says, we will come to you. Not I will come back, but we will come back. What's going on here? Abraham believed that he and his son somehow would return together. And so then as the two of them walked along with Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, Isaac speaks and he asks, Genesis 22, 7, he says, my father, Abraham says, what is it, my son? He, Here's the fire and the wood, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We, I think we're packing a little light. I think we've forgotten something. We need to search for it. We need to go on the hunt. What's the next plan, dad? What, what are we doing next? And Abraham's replies become a synonym for living by faith when it sometimes feels like a humanly hopeless situation. So Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them continued on together. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why Abraham could talk like that. Why could he even say that? Because he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. He believed it. Verse 19 in Hebrews 11, he reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. Abraham didn't know how. He'd never seen someone raised from the dead. But he reasoned from what he knew about God to what he knew about this situation. And the only thing he could come up with that made sense was, okay, I'm going to put my own son to death, but then God is going to raise him back up again. And that's pretty fantastic if you think about it. Especially since no one in history had been raised from the dead here. This is 2,000 years before Jesus. God can raise the dead. And He proved that fact because there is an empty tomb outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that part was 100% correct. But He was wrong in a sense about Isaac dying that day. At least literally. And so we read, we're back and forth here, I know, but same story. Genesis 22, verse 12. Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him. Can you imagine the last second as he had already committed in his heart to obey God no matter what, no matter what? The last second. Do not harm the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw behind him a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. And so he went over and he got the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket. A ram placed there by God. And he offered that ram in the place of his son. And so figuratively, he has indeed received Isaac back from the dead. And by the way, remember... This happened on the third day of their journey. Isaac was raised from the dead on the third day of this journey of faith. Coincidence? 
<laughs> not on your life. Not on your life. Last week we read in Isaiah 55 and verse 8. God says, indeed, my plans are not like your plans and my deeds are not like your deeds. Okay, so did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Yes, he did. He absolutely did. Was it a legitimate request? Well, sure it was. It came from God. Did Abraham know in advance how this story would end? No, he did not. He did not know how it would end. Specifically, he didn't know about the ram in the thicket, right? No, he didn't know about the ram in the thicket. Well then, what was it that Abraham knew? He knew that God had asked him to do this, and he knew that God had promised to give him a son through whom God was going to bless the world. And so what he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile this promise, this blessing the world through Isaac, how God was going to reconcile the promise with the command, sacrifice Isaac, offer him to me as sacrifice. And even though the command made no sense from a human point of view, Abraham intended to obey it anyway. He intended to obey God's command, even though it meant killing God's promise. So how could a man do such a thing? Because he believed that God could raise the dead. He believed it. See, resurrection is the supernatural variable in this equation that helps make it all make sense. And that's the key. Resurrection is the key to making sense of all of life. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, he reasoned. He reasoned. That God could even raise him from the dead. And that original word translated reasoned or considered or accounting, depending on what translation you're using, it comes from a root word that means numerical calculation. It's math. (laughs) He did the math. And it evolved to be this metaphorical word uh, without reference to numbers and its meaning. And so it means uh, today kind of evaluating the characteristics of someone or something that, for it to make sense. It's kind of sizing it up. So Abraham sized it all up. And it means to take into account in light of the facts. And so Abraham did not take a blind leap of faith here on Mount Moriah. He considered God's attributes. He considered God's character. Okay, so God is loving. God is just. God is mighty. He never deceives us. He is faithful to keep His covenant promises. Let's see here. Let me write this equation down. He promised that in, okay, that in Isaac, my descendants would be numbered. Okay, Isaac doesn't yet have any children. Hang on a second. Let's see. Carry the one, uh, variable Y. And now he's asked me to sacrifice Isaac on this mountain to him. Okay, let's see. What's his uh, solution? God must be planning to raise him from the dead. That's the only reasonable outcome. What logic? But see, Satan will invariably try to get us to doubt or deny some aspect of God's character, some aspect of God's attributes. He got Eve to doubt God's goodness by just simply implying that God was keeping something good from she and Adam, right? Satan sometimes tempts us in times of trial to doubt God's love. And that's why the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 we read, For I am convinced. How are you convinced, Paul? Because I've done the math. I've sized it up. I am convinced 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor heavenly rulers nor things that are present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so sometimes Satan tries to get us to doubt God's sovereignty. Because a good God would not permit that kind of trial you're going through, right? How can a good God allow this to happen? See, that's calling into question the sovereignty of God. But if you fall into that trap, then you give Satan more power than he has. Faith is bringing into present reality the things hoped for. That's God's promises. And it proves things that are not seen. That's what faith is. Faith believes that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so with Abraham, faith says, okay, even though my current situation seems to go against God's love and His goodness based on His covenant promises to me, based on what He has promised me, I will trust in Him that He's going to work all these things together for good for me because I am called according to His purpose. And so therefore He reasoned. He reasoned that God could even raise Him from the dead. And in a sense, He received Him back from there. In a sense, He received Him Back from the dead. And so the sequence of events was so dramatic for Abraham that it was though Isaac really had died and had been raised to life again. That's the emotional event that happened with Abraham here. And so instead of being against God's love, his difficult command to Abraham actually demonstrates God's love in an unforgettable way. Because indeed... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? And so in Genesis 22, we see what a man would do for the love of God. But at Calvary, we see what God would do for the love of man. And Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God actually sacrificed His only son. So when God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to cry out, Stop! Don't harm the child! There was no ram in the thicket to offer in His place. And God's hand fell in judgment on His own son. And Jesus died for you and He died for me. And when I read Genesis 22, I was struck by something that God said to Abraham after This great trial was over. After he had gone through this, after the ram was sacrificed, Isaac's spared, the promise is reaffirmed. It comes to that happy part of the ending here to every great trial. God commends Abraham. And He says to him, Do not harm the boy. This is back in Genesis 22. Do not harm the boy. The angel said, Do not anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Because what? You did not withhold your son, your only son, From me. God says, I asked you for your most precious possession. And you gave it to me, Abraham. And I dare say that God leads most of us again and again to Mount Moriah where we're asked to sacrifice the dearest in life to us. In one of his books, Watchman Nee said that we approach God like little children. 
So we come to God with little children, open hands, begging for gifts. That, you know, because He's good, He's a good God, He fills our hands with things. He fills our hands with life and health and friends. And, and He fills it up with, with, with work that we love to do maybe and, and marriage and children perhaps and, and a nice home and a good job and just life itself. And so all these things that we gather up and we count as blessings. And so like children, we rejoice because we received all this stuff. Look what God has done for me. And we run around and we compare all the things that we have with one another. What did you get? What did you get? Ooh, look what they got. Look what I got. And our hands are finally full. And God says, okay, my child, I, what I really want is to have fellowship with you. So reach your hand out and take my hand. And we go, I might drop something. I can't, God. Like, I can't. I got all this stuff. I can't let go of this stuff. He says, put those things aside and take my hand. But he says, I'm the one that gave them to you in the first place. And it's like, God, you've, what you've asked is too hard. I can't put these things aside. And God says, but you must. You have to. See, we tend to associate idols with heathen statues. We tend to associate idols with things made of gold and wood or of stone. And if that's all an idol is, then we're all in the clear, right? I think. <laughs> I've seen some of that at your house. But, you know, we don't have weird statues that we bow down to. We're not offering up pig's blood or chicken entrails, you know, as sacrifices to God. So why would we do something like that? But an idol doesn't have to be a statue. An idol can be anything good. Our children, for instance, our fame... Athletic prowess, perhaps, our reputation, our money, our home, our position, our education, our cars, the people we know, our relationships there, the degrees we earn, the money we earn, the businesses that we create, the classes we teach, buildings we built maybe, organizations we manage, budgets we balance, books we wrote, songs we sang. Records we make, trips we take, portfolios we build, fortunes we amass, all of those things can make us feel comfortable and they make us feel safe and they give us status in the world. And anything, ask yourself, anything wrong with a family? Is there anything wrong with having a with loving your family? Anything wrong with making some money? Anything wrong with a career? Anything wrong with getting an education? Anything wrong with winning some awards? Anything wrong with... Having a ministry that you love? Anything wrong with making your way in the world and even having something to show for it? Anything wrong with that? Really? No. It's all good in itself, but anything good can become an idol. And so that's the real challenge of this story. Abraham came to this place where he willingly gave back to God what was already God's in the first place. And so it's God's kindness that's on display in this story. And so when we're struggling with God and we're trying to, to so desperately to hold on to these things that we value so much, it may not feel like God's kindness at the time. But it is because God knows better than we do. He knows that as long as we hold on to these things, that good becomes idle. And any idol, especially the good ones, Good ones. <laughs> Those things aren't really wrong in themselves. These gifts that God has given us, by the way, when they become too important for us, they come between us and between God. This God who loves us supremely. This God who wants the best things for us and wants to give us the best. First John chapter 3, 
Robert, you catch me at First John chapter five and verse three. We read, "For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments do not weigh us down, because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world." And this is the conquering power that has conquered the world. It's our faith. Our faith. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how wonderful to enter into this freedom of saying, Lord, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I've got no clue how this is going to end. But all I know, what I have reasoned, is that all of this belongs to you. So, Father, do with it as you will. And the Lord says, okay, you bring then your dearest and you bring your best to my altar and you leave it in my hands. And God orchestrates the affairs of life. He orchestrates the good and the bad. I didn't say creates it. I said He orchestrates it. All things, God works all things together for the good of those whom He calls. He says, you bring my nearest and dearest because I'm orchestrating the affairs of life, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, to bring you to a place where you will put your faith in Me alone. And slowly and surely, as we travel through life, He weans us away from this world if we let Him. So this morning, what is it you're hanging on to so tight that you may have once counted as a blessing from God, but now you have created within your life an idol. And perhaps you don't even recognize it. What is it that you elevate above God's call for you? Maybe He hasn't called you yet, but here's how you know. If God said today, you give that up forever for me, could you do it? Yes. You could. Would you do it? And there's the question. What is it in your life that you are not willing to give up for God? Is it these attitudes that you just seize on? Is it maybe a place at work? Maybe it's not quite on the level of Christian worker? Is it a relationship that you're involved in that perhaps at once you thought, I will be the good example and I will be the voice that's heard and now all you're doing is the listening and the following? What is it in your life that you need to bring to the altar? What's your Isaac? This morning as we're gathered together, we want to pray and encourage one another to not put anything between our lives and our God. Because that's the only way to true, eternal, blessed life. And God says the one way you get there, the only way you get there, is through my Son Jesus, whom I sacrificed for you, willingly. So what are you willing to give up for me? This morning as we gather together, if we can pray and encourage you, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, to receive God's Spirit and the promise of eternal life with Him, to be a part of His eternal family and begin today in this part of eternity, this side of eternity, living the life that God has called you to do, bringing glory to Him. And will you make that choice this morning while we stand and sing this song?